Well, I'd like to welcome you. I am Pastor Scott, as Dave said so eloquently, um, and I am, I'm really glad to share with you this morning. Um, we have just begun our series called More Than Enough. And what More Than Enough is about, it's about the happiness of God. And the happiness of God is one of the most overlooked characteristics of God. The um, characteristics of God being the things that we know about Him, the things that describe Him, the things that help us to understand Him. And it's often referred to as the blessedness of God. That God in Himself is perfectly happy. He's perfectly happy. He's content within the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existed in eternity past in complete happiness. And in the overflow of their joy created the earth, mankind, everything. They created everything. One God in three persons created everything to bring about more and more and more joy. And that's what this series is about, is that since he is the source of all joy, when we want joy and we want happiness and we want life to be filled Where we need to be looking is not the things that we often look to in this life, but rather where we need to be looking is God. And so this week, we are particularly going to focus on how worship can bring us more than enough in God. And it's going to be a different way of talking about a sermon like this, so you might be surprised at some of the ways that we talk about, but we're just going to start with a little clarity on worship. We had great worship this morning. We sang, we glorified God, we honored Him and praised Him with our lips. Additionally, we are about to hear a sermon that I hope is going to be great worship, where we listen with our minds, take in God's Word, think about the things of this life, and seek to glorify Him more out of our lives. But worship doesn't end with this morning. Worship is a lifestyle in which we bow our knees to God and honor God with every portion of our life. Everything in our life, we honor God when we worship Him. This is to say, in a very succinct way, all we do is worship. All we do is worship. Now, if you're like my wife Hannah was last night, she shook her head and said, what, when I said that, because it didn't make sense to her. But that's what this is about. All we do is worship. And whether you are worshiping God, yourself, or an idol, everything in your life is an act of worship to something. So that's what we're going to talk about this week. And I'm going to start by just sharing a little bit with you, with you of how my week went. Um, this was a rough week, to be quite honest. I've shared before that um, in our last series about idolatry, family is my idol. And as far as the idolatry of family is going for me and Hannah, we're waiting and tapping the clock, and it's not happening. And we got news this week that wasn't the news we wanted, and it's not, it's not the end of the world, but it still was a rough body blow about family that in, a, in an area of my life where I already struggled. And it was rough to the point where starting last Thursday and going into Monday, we just, 
we were in a bad way. We were hurting. We were sad. We were upset. But we were, we were, we were pulling through. We were giving it our all. And we were, we were depending on God. And it got to the point where I started thinking, you know what? A good move in the midst of this is probably just to adopt a dog. It's to bring a dog into our family. Um, that'll help us through this. A lot of you are laughing. But um, like this, this will help us just for a time, just as, as we're being patient, as we're waiting, as we're figuring out. A, a puppy, a dog, is, would be a great thing. And so, without telling Hannah, I went to the Humane Society, and I went to see a dog. Because I had looked on the Humane Society's website, and I thought, in my depression, this dog is adorable. Hannah might love, love her. Let's go, I'm going to go check her out. So I went to see this dog, and sure enough, she was a sweetie. Her name was um, Kona. Her name was Kona. And here she is at the Humane Society, and nobody loves her. She needs love. This is going to be, if I just bring Hannah here, she'll love her, and we'll have a dog, and it'll be the best thing in the world. So on Tuesday nights, I, I text Hannah, say, hey, I send her a picture of the dog. She immediately says, you went without me? You went to see the dog without me? I'm like, ah, it's okay, it's okay, I'll bring you back tonight. So I'm like, I wanted to stake it out first. I didn't want to walk into the Humane Society and be shocked by, a, I don't know, I, I've never been to the Humane Society before. I don't know what I thought would happen. Someone would attack me, whatever. Um, and so we come back and... We, we come and see the dog, and Hannah's like, oh, we got to see this dog. That's not how she talks. But so we go, and we sign up so we can interact with the dog, and we're interacting with this, this sweet boxer mix that's about this tall, and she's adorable, and she's great, and she's really friendly and laying on her back so we can rub her tummy, and we're like, this, oh, man, this is, this is, this is the dog. This is the dog. This dog is great. She's perfect. But it was 8 o'clock at night. It was about 7.35. And we didn't have anything for a dog. I still had clothes on the floor. Because I get an area where I get to leave clothes on the floor that Hannah doesn't get mad about. And so we didn't have anything set up. If we would have brought the dog home, the dog would have been like, ooh, this, and ooh, that, and destroyed everything, and then laid on a pile of my clothes because we didn't have a bed for it. And so we're like, you know what? We're going to wait. We're going to pray tonight that if God wants us to have this dog, she'll be here tomorrow, and we'll get her, and we'll come super early and do everything we can to make sure that nobody else gets this dog. Because she's our dog. And so as the night went on, we got more excited. Hannah was more open to having a dog. She was getting excited. And our sorrows were departing. Cut to the next morning. We wake up. I go to a meeting. We go to a meeting with uh, Dave Bloom. And then we go to the store to look at stuff, realize that PetSmart and Petco are a complete ripoff when it comes to dog stuff. Like, they're just sitting there gouging you with all these prices. And so we say, okay, okay, uh, we're going to have to figure out something else. But we'll get the supplies. We'll either buy them from the Humane Society or something will happen. And so Hannah goes home to do some shopping, get her hair cut. I go to the Humane Society because they open at noon. So I get there at 11, and I'm looking, and I'm like, I don't know if I can, still don't know the rules. So I walk into the main entrance. The adoption area is closed. The veterinarian area is open. So I'm like, oh, I can't even do anything. 
So I'll just go somewhere. So I drove over to a pet shop, found great deals. Clearly God's hand was upon this because here we're finding great deals on pet stuff and it's a local shop and I just felt wonderful. So after about a half hour of shopping and spending a ton of money on Future Dog, get back in my car and I head back to the Humane Society and I walk in and there's one family flittering about. I'm like, oh, they must be using the bathroom or something. Like, I don't want to sit in here. That's weird. Who sits in the waiting room of the main society? I'll go sit on a bench outside. There's all these nice benches. So I'm sitting there and reading stuff on my phone and just relaxing. And I keep seeing person after person walk by me. I'm like, man, there's a lot of people going to the vet. I can't believe how many people use the vet at the main society. This is crazy. Gets to 11.45 and I'm like, well, in 15 minutes, that seems like a reasonable time to go in. I'll go in and wait. So I walk my way in there, and I get inside, and there's a line of 12 people. And my heart just drops to my feet. Because I'm like, those 12 people are going to take my puppy. How dare they? So I wait with the tension mounting, and I wait and wait. And uh, finally, after the 15 minutes of me just sitting there, in case your Hannah just walked in, she was helping CB kids, telling them the story of the puppy, Hannah, just so you're caught up to speed. So I'm waiting at the door, and they let us in, and the people, one by one, go through the check-in line. It gets to me, and I've listened, like an eavesdropper that I am, at every person. I'm like, nobody's asked for Kona. Nobody's asked for Kona. We're good. We're good. It gets to me, and they're like, hi, why are you here? And I'm like, I am here to adopt Kona. I have cash on hand. I'll do it right now. It'll be great. They're like, oh, sorry. Somebody else is also looking at her, just so you're aware. They might not adopt her, but they might. And I was like, oh, okay. Just cut to five minutes later. I'm sitting in front of her little stall, trying to make the biggest puppy dog eyes I can to say, like, hey, whatever family is coming to look at her, I need her more than you do, so please don't be mean. And this family with the first family that was there, I probably beat them there, but that we're not going to scamper. Um, this first family is seeing they have a little kid, and they're talking about how their 12-year-old came and saw her last night. And I'm like, I saw her in the afternoon, so what are you talking about? I've got first dibs. And they see the dog, and I'm watching them interact, and I'm like, they're not good with they're not good with her. They're not going to take her. Their, their child is too small. She's too energetic. It's going to be okay. And then I see them walk out of the room, and I'm like, yeah. They're not walking with her. And I walk by the room, and it says, this dog has been adopted. And about five minutes before that, I called Hannah, and I told her, I'm like, there's a chance we might not get Kona, just to warn you. And she responded with, like, the most broken voice you can imagine, Hannah saying, just like, oh, okay, I'll pray. And she hung up, and so then I find out that they've adopted my dog, thieving redheads. And so, can't trust redheads anymore, except for Jordan Pollard and Jake Pasquet, which there's other people that I trust too, I'm just kidding. So I'm, I'm like, okay, I gotta call Hannah now and tell her that this is not happening. And so... I call her up, and she starts crying. And then I start crying, and I'm driving home. And 
and thinking, man, I hate this week. I hate this week so much. I don't understand what's happening. I don't understand why is everything so hard? Why are things not going our way? We prayed about this. What in the world is your plan? And on top of that, that night, I would have to preach the first of three messages I had to give this week. I went and spoke twice to the sixth graders for Heritage Christian School on Wednesday night and Thursday night. And I had a sermon to write about worship. And you know what's a great start to writing a sermon about worship? Having a heart that's almost angry at God because things haven't gone your way. So there I was thinking, I have to write a sermon about worship and I don't want to worship. I don't. And you know what that's like. You've had those weeks. A lot of you are suffering. I know about your suffering. And you're going through these awful things. And you think, okay, this morning I have to go into service on Sunday and worship God from a place in my heart that isn't right. And that's hard. And you're just worn down and you're angry and you're upset and you don't understand why. And then you have worship to do. Well, the reality is this sermon is for you. It's for all of us. But it's for those of you who are saying in your heart right now, I don't know if I can worship. Because the reality is, you already are. You already are worshiping because all we do is worship. All we do, whether it's centered on ourselves, whether it's centered centered on our idols, or whether it's centered on God himself, All you'll do is worship. And we're going to hear this directly from the source of our worship himself, Jesus Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 4, and we're going to read in verses 1 through 26, because Christ is going to help us see worship clearly. And it's going to come in three parts. And the first part is 1 through 14, setting the scene. Jesus is stepping into the land of the Samaritans. He's going into Samaria. Samaria was a place that was antagonistic to the general Jewish population and Christ Jesus himself because of some weird things that had happened. Ask your kids about what happened to the northern kingdom. They might remember from last week at CP Kids. We just talked about this. But what had happened was an invading nation took all the people out of the, out of the northern kingdom where Samaria was, mixed in other peoples with different religions, different languages, jumbled them all together, shook them up like a salad shaker, and poured out this new culture that was antagonistic to most of what was direct Hebrew belief. They held some things in common, but there was a lot of antagonism. They they were as similar with, with the Hebrews. The Samaritans to the Hebrews would be like the Mormons to us. There's really not a lot in common, but there's some things that they would say, oh, but they're similar. There's not a lot, but if we direct them towards truth and call them towards the gospel, then they can overcome. So that's kind of the difference that's here. And so it starts in 1 through 14. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So Jesus starts heading north. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied 
So Jesus, weary as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So it's around noon. It's hot out. Jesus is tired. He sits down to rest near this well. The disciples have gone into the village. And here comes this woman. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Just to understand again, this is like 60s America, where there's supposed to be separation, there's supposed to be division. Blacks and whites are not supposed to converse, they're not supposed to use... Like, that kind of situation would be a way of looking at this. They were supposed to be separated. No self-respecting Jewish man would talk to a Samaritan woman because of what it meant, because of the implications it would have on him as a person. And so here Jesus is disregarding that reality, disregarding that kind of division because he's God and speaking to her. And she's surprised. And so he, she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? In verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drink and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. All right, so we have many things happening here. And the first is that Jesus starts by offering her living water. He's offering self, he's offering the spirit. He's telling her, if if you knew who I was, you would ask me for something that would satisfy. You would ask me for something that would be lasting. You would ask me for something that would inhabit you and would not depart, would not run out, would continue to pour into yourself. And he uses this picture of living water, of a spring bubbling up. And what he is also getting at is that true satisfaction, lasting satisfaction, overflowing satisfaction is found in God alone. And he's directing the woman to realize you are eternally thirsty. You, your thirst is so perpetual that you come here day after day after day drinking from this well and find day after day after day that this well does not satisfy. If that is the case, you have a thirst that needs to be satisfied and you haven't found it yet. I am offering you something that will satisfy because you know you're thirsty and you know you need something. And that is Jesus answering the question of worship. He is saying 
to her in a roundabout way, connecting with the Spirit and connecting with our satisfaction, that we are created for worship, that all we do is worship, that over and over, day by day, second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, we are worshiping. It's what we were created for. We cannot help but do it. We were created by God in His image to worship, to celebrate, to declare the beauty of something. And like drawing water from a well, our daily lives are us filled with us dipping into things to try and satisfy us. We're picking up our phones and looking at the screens. We're worried about that person not calling us or texting us. We're worried about our job not being perfect. We have all these things that we're saying, this is worship. This is what will satisfy me. This is what will make me happy. And over and over again, it does not. It leaves us thirsty. We are not drinking salt water in this life. We're pouring salt into our mouth, compelling ourselves to thirst more and more and more when the water of God, the worship of God, is presented before us and we push it aside. Then 15 through 18. Woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. She knows she knows that's a great deal. Perpetual water? Yeah. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. When the woman asks for that water, Jesus drives her to the reality that she has been thirsty and she has been drinking, not alcohol, but she has been drinking through this worship that she has done over and over in her life. Five times she's done it. And it's this worship of love and worship of the security of a husband, that she had sought marriage as a sole means for her satisfaction, her protection, her happiness, and that she had chosen that beauty. And marriage after marriage after marriage in her life, she had seen it come up empty. A little throwback there for you. So Jesus says this to her. He's like, yeah, this is the reality. Christ is confronting it and reminding her and us of a very specific truth, those wells would not satisfy. Showing her and us that sin is worship displaced on wrong objects. Sin is not just doing wrong things. It's us trusting other things more than God. Us saying other things are better than God. One of, my, one of the most important passages in the Bible for my entire life that after reading, felt convicted, and actually came to faith, is in Romans 1, 20 through 22. And it's just a few, few pages over. And it describes us. It starts by describing God. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God created things, created us in his own image, and created the world from the overflow of his heart. And they are clearly perceived, these things clearly can, 
contain within them the stamp of God's creation. So they are without excuse. For all they, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Excuse me. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal gods for, of God, the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then over to 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than creature, than, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I decided to use an older Bible, and I have a lot of underlines in here. And apparently underlines get in the way of reading sometimes. But the point of all that is that God has created all things. All things reveal his glory, reveal him. We look upon these things. We think of God, and we start worshiping them rather than worshiping God. We choose sin. We choose to worship other and refuse God, even though everything about it has been teaching about God. It's like getting, getting a Christmas present from your parents. Parents, you'll, you'll see this in your children often. I know I did this. And saying, this is the best Christmas present ever, and just getting so focused on the present, getting so obsessed with the present that you forget about the love for the parent. You forget about being thankful to them. You, you just... You're done with them because you now have this. Which takes us to 19 through 26 in John chapter 4. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. What he had said was clearly from God. He, he did not know that of himself. She had not told him that she had had five husbands total. So she responds, You must be a prophet. Then she asked him this question. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. When the question gets directly to worship, Jesus clearly defines how worship in the coming time would not be about the place, as the argument had been in their day, but would be about the object and the heart. At that time, Jews and Samaritans were arguing about where. They had so many other issues, but they were arguing about where. Samaritans wanted to worship up on a mountain because they felt closer to God on this mountain. The Jews said we were given the temple for worship. We worship in the temple. Jesus comes into this question that she had about that doctrinal difference, and he says, first off, the Jews are right. But secondly, it's not going to matter because something is more important. True worshipers will worship 
about spirit, will worship in spirit and truth. And this portion of the text is crucial for us to think upon because the reality is we still make the same mistakes the Jews and Samaritans did. We argue over location. We get, ex- we get obsessed about location when it comes to worship, but in a different way. We're not trying to say, oh man, I need to go climb a mountain. I need to go up to the like, closest thing in Wisconsin is Holy Hill. Like, I need to climb up Holy Hill. It's kind of a mountain. It's just a hill. And I need to worship there. And someone else says, ah, no, I like worshiping in a basement. Like, there's some of that. But the issue is actually deeper. We say location through, I can only worship through a specific mood. Or, I can only worship by using this band, or this hymnal, or this style, or this way of worship. I can only worship when I'm surrounded with great friends or with family. I can only worship when I am in the right place in my mind, in my heart, in my feelings, in how I'm doing, that's when I can worship. And I can only worship, last of all, when I have a perfect auditorium, or I have a sanctuary, or I have a church building, or when I go up to Holy Hill. There are these other ways that we say location, but we mean emotion. And we mean having the people that we love perfectly around us. Or we mean the mood or the lighting or all these other things. We obsess about those. Just like the Samaritans and the Jews were obsessing about location. And Jesus responds to us the same way he did to them. Same way he did to the woman. True worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. True worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. What does that mean? John Piper describes it as the where, the how, and the whom of worship. The where, the how, and the whom of worship. We're going to add to that. We're going to call it the where, how, whom, when, and why of worship. And this is going to help us, I pray, to understand how all we do is worship and how we can glorify God in that. First off, the where. That does not matter. Stop getting hung up on the where. You are worshiping all the time. The question you need to be asking is if you are worshiping God, an idol, or yourself in what you are doing. Start by answering that. And then if you are in the midst of something and you say, you know, I don't think I can worship God with this. This is sinful. You should probably stop doing it then. You should probably repent. You should probably say, oh, you know what, God, I'm recognizing that this portion of my life that I can't do to your glory is clearly sinful. Therefore, I repent and I'm turning to something I can glorify you with. This is not to say that sports, watching TV, doing all kinds of things are inherently sinful. They can be sinful. But the question is whether you can glorify God in the midst of it. It's also important to note, saying that where is not important does not disconnect us from gathering for worship or having worship on a Sunday like this and hearing preaching. I'll get to that later, but that does not, that does not give you the right or the ability to say, well, then I just won't go to church. Then there's the how. The how refers to the state of our heart in worship. Not are you happy or sad, 
But are you honest in your worship? Are you honestly worshiping God? Matthew 15, 8 through 9, after Jesus is talking to Pharisees, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but deny me with their hearts. The question is, are we sitting here trying to honor God with our lips and our hearts are far from him? Because worship isn't going to get you any closer to God if sin is separating you from him. Your sacrifice of praise is pocket lint in comparison to the national debt of sin you've built up. You need to get your heart right with God first through faith in Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he gave on the cross to both pay the penalty of our sin and give us new life and then start worshiping out of that. You have to have the how right first. You can't just depend it, make it dependent on feeling. It has to be based on the facts of God, the realities of God. You can't just worship yourself into a right relationship with God. And we go on to the whom. The whom means you are actually worshiping God. When I was in high school, I, was, um, I went to a youth group and Assembly of God church, and it was the first time... Worship, ever, worship music ever really took my breath away, that I ever really was like, wow, this is great, and the, I, just, I just love this, I'm feeling this. And, but the problem was, every time I didn't like a song, if I felt like, ah, this isn't a good song, I wouldn't sing. If I didn't like the song, I wouldn't sing, because it didn't get me in the right feeling. It didn't take me where I needed to get to be worshiping God. The reality was, the music was my God. I was worshiping the music and not God. It got so bad at one point I was asked to help lead worship, I couldn't hear myself singing, so I quit because the mix wasn't right. Because they're going to ask me to worship, lead worship, then I'm going to be heard. I was so proud and so arrogant and so in love with music. When I quit music, I, didn't, I refused to lead worship or pursue any singing outside of being in the audience for four to five years because I feared that idol and how much control it had over me. And I just chose just to sing loudly, also known as singing for me. Hannah says I only have one volume and it's loud. And so if you hear me singing in church, it's probably that I'm across the room just doing what I do all the time. So worship is us fixing our eyes, though, on a beautiful, joyful God who loves us, and calls us to himself to experience all of life in the best way we can, in the fullest way possible. And then respond to him in just joy, in, in gratitude. C.S. Lewis wrote on this once, and he, he wrote about his struggle with praise. He's got this book called um, Reflections on the Psalms. He says this, and he said, The most obvious fact about praise whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of praise in terms of compliment, approval, the giving of honor. I have never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Because the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poets, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weathers, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, excuse me, even sometimes politicians or scholars. 
Originally, he thought that praise was God asking us to do something as far as, you know, if you don't think I'm great, then you need to praise so you recognize that I'm great. But God is giving us praise so that we can see that what he is giving us is best. And he's compelling us to enjoy it. It's like when a child brings you a, um, a picture. I drew you this picture of me and you playing in front of our house. You may look at the picture and say, oh, it's not that great. But you praise it. You say, this is wonderful. And then when you say this is wonderful and the child's joy erupts, you're like, wow, so good to praise the child. And God gives us praise by giving us praise. He gives it to us so we can rightly set our hearts and minds on that which is best. So that we can see things for what they are. So we can love them. And so we can finish, complete the joy he's given us. So those three were pipers. I'm adding two. So the first off is the when. The when. And we've said this over and over all the time. All we do is praise. All we do is worship. We have to start recognizing that. We have to start looking at that. And I've got two texts that I'm just going to use to supplement. And the first one is 1 Corinthians 10 31. If you've never heard this before, just let it sit in your heart. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Paul says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, everything you do, everything you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do it all in worship. Glorify God with it. If it doesn't glorify God, start asking yourself if you need to stop and change it. But make sure that everything, ask yourself why everything in my life does not glorify God. And the lastly, the last question we are to ask, or the last one we have, is the why of worship. Why should we worship? Colossians three twelve through 17 was what I was going to cover. We're running out of time, though. Um, so you can write that down and look it up later. But I'm just going to give you the tail end of it. And it says, in 16 through 17, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, so let the scriptures dwell in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Why? Because Christ is beautiful. Because this text tells us that when we think upon these things, we will worship, and not just to ourselves, we'll worship to others. We'll love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll love our strangers. We'll love our neighbors. We'll love everyone we come in contact with because of Christ's love. And our worship will erupt in such a way as to tell the world of the beauty of God more and more, of the beauty of the cross more and more, of the beauty of Christ. We will worship in such a way that people will see it and say, what is it about God that makes them so joyful? What is it about God that makes them so glad? What is it about God that makes them so different? And when that is happening, we will be accomplishing what worship was meant for. 
to honor God in everything. Not just the things we decide upon, but in everything. Three reasons for the why. Number one, God is most beautiful. He is the source of all life, of everything we enjoy. Every good gift comes down from the Father in lights. If everything you enjoy has its source in God, then isn't everything you enjoy supposed to be centered on God? Second, we worship to build up one another as a church. That's, that's why the where of still gathering is important. You worship all the time. We come and worship together because we are here building one another up. We can't talk to each other all the time. It's not, it's not, we're not able to, but we can worship with one another and we can pray for one another and we can call on God together to pray for the needs that each of us has. And the last reason we worship, the last why reason, is to tell the world. John Piper in his book, The Let the Nations Be Glad, says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. We talk at times about, how, about multiplication and what our purposes are as a church. The ultimate goal of our church is not multiplication. The ultimate goal of the church and our church in general is worship, which means that the multiplication leads to more people worshiping, not more people sitting together. It leads to more people worshiping God with all of their life. That is the goal of the church. And missions and multiplication and everything we do exists because worship doesn't. Because there aren't true worshipers. And so we go and tell because we are calling true worshipers in. Now, I told you about my my struggle this week and then losing the dog and everything that was going through that and all the messages and in the midst of my suffering i was reminded that god was with me through it all that even though this was hard he was not leaving me or forsaking me that he was not stepping away and that in this moment he was he was helping me and i i got some really good counsel for my parents I'm not going to share it because it will make me cry. Um, I got some really good counsel from both of my parents. And the, well, I will share it. What it was was perhaps this little suffering was God's way of allowing you guys to suffer in a small way so that the big way wouldn't crush you. Have you ever, tr- like, taken a step and just realize, man, I'm supposed to worship in suffering. I'm supposed to be thankful for this because God has a plan. And there's, and when you, it's, it's hard when you're suffering to get to that point. But when you get to that point, all of a sudden suffering becomes beautiful and life becomes better because you learn God is not, God is not chasing after your life like a vicious bully. He's approaching your life as a loving father and as a loving surgeon who looks at your life and says, this needs repair. When I spoke at the, at the um, sixth grade retreat, I told the kids about, about um, if you have a jimmy leg. I told them how I broke my leg as a kid, and the good news was my leg healed properly. Well, what if your leg doesn't heal properly, and you have a, you have a bad leg because the bone, bone didn't set properly? You go into the doctor, and you spend a few days away, And it's already started to heal. And the doctor says, I need to reset your leg. The doctor's not resetting your leg, not breaking it and putting it back together because he's malicious. 
He's doing it because he desires your joy. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be full. And that's what God does in our life. And that's what God was doing this week in me and Hannah's life. And it took us, it took us a minute to see it. We had to suffer and we had to be sorrowful, sorrowful for a while. But when we saw it, it was beautiful. And the good news is we might have found a different puppy. So we're okay as far as that is going. But I want you to know, if you're going through sorrow, if you're going through hard times, or if you're just somebody who is saying, you know, I can only worship when I feel great, it's not true. You can worship God all the time. Because he is beautiful, and he is loving, and he is full of joy, and he is with you through all things, and he is right in front of you saying, I have died for you, and I live for you, and I'm giving you my spirit so that you may be full. And I'm here. I'm everything you've ever thirsted for, and I'm the only thing that will satisfy. And that is what he gives us so that we can worship. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day, for being able to gather and worship you. And Lord, we just pray that you would bless our worship. That as we, as we um, pray for a young man right now, and then in a, in a little bit go into worship, we just pray that we would honor you, that we would glorify you, and that your name would be made great through everything we do. It's in your name we pray. Amen.